And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, January 18th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, will the Space Force ever get its own National Guard? Plus, what whistleblowers will need from Congress in 2024? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, records officers have been on the front lines of agency efforts to ditch the paper and move to a more digital government. Specialists collaborate and share best practices through a self-organized group called the Federal Records Officers Network, the FRON. For more on the group's work, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke to the Records and Information Program Manager at the Securities and Exchange Commission and FRON co-chairman Ron Swecker. We've been in existence a little over 10 years now, so I was working for the Department of Transportation under the CIO, and I had worked several IT initiatives. Early in 2012, I was eventually assigned to the role as the Departmental Records Officer without really any background in records and information management other than through my various roles, building information systems, which part of the requirements involve managing records. I formally learned my new responsibilities by attending records management certification courses through the National Archives, as well as attending various industry conferences and seminars to be able to learn what my role was supposed to be. During these conferences, I met a number of my counterparts at various departments and agencies, and most of our discussions involved getting advice and lessons learned from their efforts. A lot of us had a background in a lot of the eGov initiatives back in the early 2000s, so collaboration wasn't anything new to us. But we found that there was a void in the record space, so we started looking around for other entities that could fill that. And we found that there really wasn't the capability. So I partnered with one of my counterparts, Wendy Couch, who at the time was the Department of Commerce records officer. She's now retired. And we began efforts to stand up the environment. So this all began in the fall of 2012, where the idea came about. Uh, We had small meetings basically addressing and coordinating some efforts to identify departmental records management training. And we had our first meeting in June of 2013 when we had a face-to-face meeting with our initial 15 members. Over that time, Ron now serves approximately 350 members representing the federal agencies and the military. So we've grown uh, considerably over that time and continue as the word gets out. And, you know, it's obviously been a pretty busy decade for federal records managers. I'm guessing the most important issue for you all is probably digitization and the many different forms that that's taken over the last decade and the different mandates and things that have come out. I'd love to get your thoughts just from, you know, your perspective as chairman of the FRON on how that issue has evolved over the last 10 years. What's We know the mandates, what the mandates are from NARA, but what's the view from the folks who are actually working this at the agencies? Well, certainly we've, uh, federal agencies have been digitizing their, their records for a number of years. Obviously, the guidance uh, coming out of the National Archives and NIST and different sources have evolved over that time. So, Federal agencies have have evolved with it, but it's been a bit of a challenge, especially when in regards to permanent records. There has certainly been recent guidance provided by the National Archives that has firmed up those standards. I think federal agencies are moving forward, abiding by those standards, and I think eventually many organizations will either meet their required uh, deadline of June of this year. I think the main challenge as far as managing those digital records, though, is what type of environment those digital records are treated, how they're managed, and whether there's any automation associated with it. When 
need to move on beyond just digitization and provide automation into the processes themselves and in managing those records. I think that's where the convergence of the traditional records and information management discipline kind of comes together with other disciplines like data management. We all have to work collaboratively to be able to automate as much of the processes and managing of records as possible. I think that's going to be the greater challenge, and that's going to certainly take some time, but that's the direction that everyone seems to be moving towards. Yeah, it's interesting. I should mention when I ask about digitization, of course, uh, folks will think about digitizing permanent records that are in analog, you know, paper or whatever else format. But then, of course, there's the challenge of the expanding deluge of native electronic records in different formats and things like that. And you mentioned the merging of kind of the records management and the data fields. And I'm wondering, do you have collaborations with your CDO, chief data officer counterparts, you know, how how are those two sides of the coin talking to each other today? And, you know, does the the Fraun work with that side of the agency that is very much a newer side of the agency, many agencies? Yes. And I think there's a, a lot of areas for collaboration. We have had at least two that I can think of meetings with uh, chief data officers from different organizations that are members of the CDO council. We've also collaborated with members of the federal knowledge management community, the Freedom of Information Act community, or FOIA, various privacy officers, and even specific areas of focus like the Council for Inspector Generals for Integrity and Efficiency, or SIGI. We do have combined meetings to see where there are areas of, of common interest and collaboration opportunities. And while I think to get back to your original question about meeting with the chief data officers and working with them, that is still evolving and we still have a lot more work to do. But a lot of the requirements have a considerable amount of overlap. So I think that's an area where we have to continue to move forward and work collaboratively with with that community. You had mentioned that part of the Fraun's initial efforts were around training. And I'd love just to get your thoughts on what folks should know about a career in federal records management and the role that those folks play at federal agencies. I've been very impressed with my colleagues that I've worked with over the years in the more traditional role of records officers and records managers. A lot of those folks have a master's degree in say, for instance, museum and library sciences. And those programs have evolved and technology has changed. I think they've done a pretty good job of changing their academic background or or academic content uh, based on the changing environment. But I think what's probably even more important is focusing on the teams that manage records. We see a shift towards records management offices, having a multidiscipline records and information management teams that comprise of the more traditional records specialists as well as IT specialists with that focus on information management. I think that collective efforts is what's necessary to move forward. Ron Swecker, Records and Information Program Manager at the Securities and Exchange Commission and co-chairman of the Federal Records Officers Network. Speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what whistleblowers will need from Congress in 2024. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Improper payments, fraud in nearly every major federal program, contracting irregularities and false claims, these problems roll on and on year after year. Whistleblowers who point them out and other problems need several legal reforms. That's according to the leading whistleblower attorney, Stephen Cohn of Cohn Cohn Colapinto. He joins me now. Stephen, good to have you with us again. Well, thank you so much, and it's always a pleasure. And you have written here in the National Law Review seven reforms, count them, 
that you feel are still needed to make sure that whistleblowing does what it's supposed to do. And let's run right through them. First on your list was Treasury Department must enact regulations regarding anti-money laundering. How does that affect whistleblowers? Sure. So first, as an introduction, all seven of these reforms have strong bipartisan support. Furthermore, as we've pointed out many times, objective and high-quality public opinion polling, including the Marist poll, have shown that 80% of the American people support more whistleblower protections. And one in four likely voters say that a candidate's position on whistleblowing could impact their decision on whether to support that candidate. So we're dealing with a situation in which you have seven pending whistleblower reforms, all with strong bipartisan support, strong public support, yet all of them are stalled either within an executive agency, which is ignoring the problem, or within Congress that is busy debating whatever they're debating, as opposed to you know, getting a job done. So you, we start with the money laundering regulations. Last term, Congress unanimously passed, unanimously, the Whistleblower Improvement Act for money laundering and sanctions. Full support. Yet the Treasury Department has not implemented any regulations. So what does that mean? Whistleblowers don't know how to file claims. They don't know how to obtain the benefits of the law. There is nothing on the Treasury Department website explaining this law. So if you think about how bad money laundering is worldwide, and it also covers all sanctions violations, Iranian sanctions, Hamas sanctions, ISIS sanctions, Russian sanctions, and a law exists, yet the Treasury Department has done nothing that we know of to put forward the necessary public rules to guide whistleblowers and even inform them of their rights. That's unacceptable, and it could change literally in two weeks if someone in the Treasury Department would do their job. So we're calling on public support, push Treasury to do their job. All right, let's move on to the Justice Department. Since you're writing, since January of 2021, they've required people to accept anonymous and confidential whistleblower disclosures, those regulations aren't there yet either. This is one of the most frustrating problems I've had to deal with. I've actually met with Justice Department investigators on major money laundering case, and they had no idea that federal law required my whistleblower to be anonymous. Now, why is this important? Think about money laundering. It's an international crime often organized crime, drug cartels, drug dealers, terrorist financing. If there's any group of whistleblowers in the world that need the strongest confidentiality protections, it's those who are reporting money laundering and sanctions violations. Who has the inside information about Hamas financing, about Iranian financing of terrorism? Who has that? And think about how vulnerable these sources of information are. Congress said as of January 1, 2021, that every one of these whistleblowers can go to the U.S. Department of Justice anonymously and confidentially and make their reports. Yet there's nothing on a website, no operating procedure, no rule, and the agents responsible for investigating and interacting with these informants don't even know of the legal requirements. Totally, completely unacceptable. The January 1 law was completely bipartisan. Totally. There was no opposition in Congress to this right of whistleblowers that was deemed so critical in this important area. Yet nothing for now going on three years. We're speaking with attorney Stephen Cohn. He's a partner at Cohn, Cohn, and Colapinto. And I guess we can move on to the Securities and Exchange Commission. You're finding something that they need <laughs> so to do. So we're having fun. 
we're having fun now, aren't we? Yes, we it, are, actually. Okay. So there's a bill, again, a bipartisan bill, equal number of Democrats and Republicans. So you have Senator Chuck Grassley, conservative Republican from Iowa, co-sponsoring it with Elizabeth Warren, liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. No opposition. Other senators from both parties supporting this bill. It would do two things. First, it would permit whistleblowers who report to internal compliance and their supervisors, their audit committees, to be covered and not be subject to retaliation pursuant to the Dodd-Frank Act. Right now, if a whistleblower for a company goes to the head of their audit committee and is fired, they have no rights under Dodd-Frank. This would change that. Everyone supports it. Second, there's massive delays. The SEC program has been very successful. Thousands of people have come in. They've awarded many awards to whistleblowers. But what we know is there's literally hundreds upon hundreds of valid whistleblowers waiting in the queue, sometimes up to three to five years, just to get their award, which is required by statute. So you have a whistleblower who's lost their job. The government has collected, say, hundreds of millions of dollars in sanctions. The law says they're supposed to get an award for their contribution. Yet, they could sit unemployed. I even had a client once who had to go on to Medicaid for health insurance. Total poverty because they'd lost their job waiting for what was their legal entitlement. So this statute puts a one-year requirement on the SEC to make an initial determination, covers internal. Simple changes to make the law work. Total bipartisan support, stalled. And you're finding the same problem at the IRS, repeal by delay. The IRS takes it to a new level. Their average delay, average that they admit to in their reports is 10 years. Essentially, the program is the walking dead. What whistleblower can wait 10 years for a payment of an award for which they are legally entitled, to which the government has concluded the prosecution? It shows an apathy. It shows an administrative hostility to whistleblowing, a cultural issue that does exist within the federal government, we'll address that down below, where it just isn't the priority it should be. And again, this comes back to the Treasury Department that hasn't done the AML rules, the IRS is under Treasury, it isn't a priority supporting these whistleblowers. So this bill would simply say that if you delay an award to a fully qualified whistleblower for over one year, you have to pay them interest on the money they're supposed to get paid. And our experts know that the IRS is like tuned to money. And if there was an interest requirement, they most likely would prioritize the payments. There's other reforms in there, but that's the key. And the delay has been totally undermining the reporting of large-scale tax evasion. All right. And the list goes on. We'll have to do the lightning round here for your last three priorities for Congress here. Strengthen the False Claims Act. There is a matter for the Commodities Future Trading Commission and for just simply basic respect by the federal government for whistleblowers. So just to put these three into better context, the CFTC fund, there's just not enough money in the fund to pay the whistleblower. To understand it, the fund is created by the sanctions whistleblowers bring into the government. No whistleblower, no fund, no money to this fund. But the fund has a low cap. So I would say at least 95% of the sanctions that come into the CFTC just pass on to the federal budget. So when it's time to compensate the whistleblower, there's no money there. It's a very simple reform, full bipartisan support, no one expected the CFTC whistleblower program to be as successful as it's been, and they have to have a fund to pay the people. Simple. The false claims in the respect of the agencies, all of this is really at the heart that there remains 
resistance to whistleblowing within the federal bureaucracy. Some agents and officials love whistleblowers. They're really supportive. They're doing a fantastic job, but others don't. So that's why we're really pushing this idea of National Whistleblower Day, which has received unanimous support in the U.S. Senate for 10 consecutive years. And it's essentially requiring federal agencies to look at the contributions of whistleblowers, publicize them, and educate their own workforce and the public as to why whistleblowing is important as really a cornerstone to change the underlying culture that impacts all of these problems. Wow. So Congress can't even get done what it agrees on. Now it's easy to see why they can't get done what they don't agree on, I guess. What's so frustrating about this is that you have some really good laws on the books, excellent laws, and we see how they can work and how whistleblowers can be fully supported, can be fully compensated. And so then we look at problems within these laws or very technical reforms that are needed to make what is really a good foundation to be effective, not just to some high profile cases, but to the run of the mill average whistleblower just trying to get compensation, just trying to feed their family, just trying to survive and not forced to undergo delays and other roadblocks. So some of these laws are working fantastic. Others are stalled up. Over 80% of the American people want to see these stronger protections. And it's so incumbent for people to really raise their voices and say, let's get the job done. Attorney Stephen Cohn is a partner at Cohn Cohn Colapinto. As always, thanks so much. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview along with a link to his National Law Review article at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, it's never too early in the year to think about life insurance. But first, will the Space Force ever get its own National Guard? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Several years in and still no National Guard component for the Space Force. What Space Force got in the most recent defense authorization bill is a feasibility study. We get more now from the Colorado National Guard Brigadier General Michael Bruno. General Bruno, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to join you today. All right. And what is your feeling about this development in the NDAA? Because a lot of people from... Space Force and Air Force have frankly said it's about time for a National Guard there. And I completely agree with what you're saying. So first, I do need to uh, say that up front that my opinions are my own, do not reflect the opinions of the Colorado National Guard, the United States Air Force or the Department of Defense. The 2024 NDAA, the one thing it didn't do is it did not establish a Space National Guard. It does, however, require the Secretary of Defense to conduct an interim briefing by the 1st of February and a study by the 1st of March to assess the feasibility and advisability of moving all Air National Guard space functions to the Space Force. This assessment will analyze three course of actions, that is maintain the status quo, what we're doing today, supporting space missions from the Air National Guard, move all Air National Guard space assets to the U.S. Space Force, or in Hopefully, the or is what we're looking for is create a Space National Guard. Is there anything to be learned, do you think, from like the Marine Corps, which is kind of like the Space Force in some respects, that it has a nominally, at least, parent organization called the Navy, and Space Force came out of the Air Force? Is there anything that's analog there that could be used for these learnings? So there is. So you're absolutely right. The way the Space Force works now is... They're all teeth, no tail. They do all the operations side of the house while Air Force does most of the support functions for them. So medical, defense, same as the Navy does for the Marine Corps. What's different, though, is under the new NDAA, Space Force is going to become a branch without a service component. So they are going to this brand new, uh, one time it was called the Space Force Personnel Management Act, 
but they're going to this brand new construct where they don't have a component. People will serve in an active status, inactive status, or a reserve status. So this is an experiment in a new way of doing business for a branch of the military. So what does that mean then for a National Guard possibility? So we think that they can do both at the same time. So the Space Force Personnel Management Act is pretty much encompassing the reserve status of having a Space Force Reserve. So you have those folks that are doing active status, those folks that are doing an inactive status, and then the retirees. But you could also have a Space National Guard, which would be your surge to war capability. We are already doing that surge to war capability supporting combat commanders. So that would give you that capability. So they could both function together. And that's our hope is that's what happens. Maybe it's good to review Space Force's operational responsibilities now and how that could translate to a reserve force that would be called up. I mean, what would need to be augmented, for example, in a national emergency with Space Force? Because, again, there's no kinetic operation in space quite yet. You're absolutely correct. But currently, the National Guard does 60 percent of the Space Force's electromagnetic warfare capabilities. And this is both uplink and downlink from satellites, either disrupting or putting things into the system. And that is a capability that COCOM commanders really have an appetite for. And since we're already doing 60 percent of that mission, why not keep us in the fold and continue to have us do that mission? We're speaking with Brigadier General Michael Bruno. He's director of the Joint Staff for the Colorado National Guard. And in its statement on this development in the NDAA and not getting the uh, Space Force National Guard this year again, the National Guard Association said that the analysis called for is mostly complete. And they also said that transferring roughly 1,000 Air National Guard space units in eight states and territories to a single component Space Force is not feasible. Unit commanders have surveyed their personnel and the majority want to stay in the National Guard. So what's going on with that statement? The statement that individuals want to stay with the National Guard? Yeah. Absolutely. So we recently conducted another survey and about 80% of them want to stay in the National Guard. These are individuals that live in their communities, want to continue to serve both federally and at the state level. So approximately 20% would be willing to transfer to this new, no-component branch of service. So that 80% would have to be recruited and then retrained to do the missions that we currently do. The Guard's been doing these missions for approximately 27 years, and that goes back to the 137th out of Greeley, Colorado. So we have some of the most senior space professionals doing space operations at this time. So if they create the Space Force, don't create a Space National Guard, and only get 20% of our force, they've got to make up that other 80% by recruiting and training those individuals. And it's our opinion, and it's the National Guard Bureau opinion out of the Pentagon, that it would take seven to 10 years to develop a space professional from scratch to where we currently are. So there's a capability and a readiness gap right there for seven to 10 years. Yeah, and there's a considerable opportunity cost, I guess, then for that eight to 10 years in real dollars. Absolutely. So unfortunately, that cost is immeasurable. National Guard Bureau has put out some numbers, uh, and again, National Guard Bureau out of the Pentagon, that it will cost approximately a billion dollars to transfer everything that is currently done in the Air National Guard space missions to the U.S. Space Force. And this includes all the training and also the equipment, the facilities that would be required and everything that goes with it. So a billion dollars and that seven to 10 years worth of readiness. They've also figured if we just create a Space National Guard, take those 1,000 service members in 14 units, and currently it's only seven states. So take those individuals and change them to Space National Guard, it would cost about $250,000 versus a billion. We're talking changing name tapes and changing signage and guidons at the unit level. That's your cost. All right. So what is the course next, just to wait for that study? And what do we know about who's going to conduct it and who's going to evaluate it? 
So <laughs> that's an interesting question. So the study is actually being done by the Department of Defense. The requirement that came out of Congress is for the Secretary of Defense to do this study. So it will be interesting. And again, this is where we go that my opinions don't reflect those of Colorado National Guard, Air Force, or DOD. It will be interesting if that report even sees the light of day. And the reason being is the White House's Office of Management and Budget has said there will not be a Space National Guard. They don't support a Space National Guard. Well, the Secretary of Defense works for the administration. He works for the White House. So when the White House OMB says there will not be a Space National Guard, it's hard for them to push anything out that says anything against that position. So we'll see if anything comes out of that. The analysis again, done by DOD, and then it's supposed to be presented to Congress. So Congress is who's gonna look at it and then make determination. And that's really what we're looking for, is for Congress to make the determination, is what's the best thing for the United States and the citizens right now. And I still think it's established the Space National Guard today. Brigadier General Michael Bruno is director of the Joint Staff for the Colorado National Guard. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, it's never too early in the year to think about life insurance. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Lots of people make financial resolutions early in a calendar year. Here's one that's easy to follow through on. Life insurance, how much you really need and where to find the best deal. Joining me with some advice, the well-insured Abe Grungold of AG Financial Services. Abe, good to have you back. Thank you. Happy New Year. It's always wonderful to start off the year with a good topic. Yes, thinking about what happens after you die, which was when your life insurance would pay off. But what are your thoughts? Because my understanding is that life insurance requirements change throughout your life cycle. Yeah, life insurance is one of these products that you really need through your life. And I always had life insurance during my federal career because you need to cover the amount of debt that you owe. You need to be able to leave something aside for a funeral, which are very expensive these days. And if you have dependents, you need to set aside money to care for your dependents so they have something. Right. And life insurance takes many forms. I guess for most feds, the most common is the FEGLI, the official federally issued insurance, correct? Yes, FEGLI is insurance that the government immediately signs you up for it when you first are employed, and you actually have to fill out a form to get out of FEGLI. But the good thing about FEGLI is there are no requirements to obtain FEGLI as far as a physical or a questionnaire regarding your health and you automatically can obtain life insurance. You just have to decide how much life insurance you want. But it can be a little pricey compared to other options that are available outside of the government. And the Fegley insurance or those outside of the government are basic pay-as-you-go death benefit. They're not whole life. They're not savings types of plans. They're simply term insurance. Well, unfortunately, the companies outside the government offer all types, universal life, whole life, term life, and many other types of insurance products. I always had my life insurance outside of the government, and I always selected a term life insurance policy, whether I had it per year, or I had a 20-year policy. I always felt that term life insurance provided the best life insurance coverage that 
fit my needs and it was also very, very affordable. And I had a 20 year term life policy when I got married. I felt that was what was needed for both me and my wife. So term is you pay a monthly or yearly premium and you get a specific death benefit and that's it. There's no more savings associated with it. There's no value in some kind of an annuity policy or anything like the old whole life and similar types of programs or I guess they have hybrid programs and universal life and all of these other products. That's correct. There's no cash surrender value. And before I was employed with the government, I had a whole life policy that I had through a company outside of the government. And this was before I started with the government. And years into the policy, I saw that it was necessary for me to terminate this type of insurance because it got expensive and it didn't fit my needs. When I had this whole life policy before I started with the government, I felt that it was too expensive and I decided to terminate it once I had it for several years. I saw working for the government, there were other better insurance products out there more affordable. And so I cashed in that whole life policy. All right. And what about the issue of the amount you actually need as your death benefit? Let's just talk about straight death benefit. You mentioned the elements that go into figuring that as your income goes up, how do you make sure that your policy keeps up as you move through, say, the GS schedule, you know, and you get higher and higher salaries? Well, you can select, it's called one X or one times your salary. So as your salary increases each year, the coverage of your insurance also increases. Or you can select 2X or 3X. And I have seen a lot of federal employees carry a lot of life insurance. They feel that it's necessary to cover the vast amount of debt from their mortgage and to provide security for their dependents in the event something happens to them. The cost, though, is not linear, right? If you were to double your death benefit, say from half a million to a million, does the premium double or does it go up by a certain percentage? Certainly the premium is going to be much, much more. And insurance at that level may not be affordable for you through a government-sponsored life insurance policies. It would be best if you wanted to have 500000 or a million dollars of life insurance coverage to go outside of the government and obtain a term life insurance policy for those levels of coverage. It'll be much more affordable. Right. So you could go to a WEPA or one of the commercial companies that would have these types of products, and it might give you a better deal than Fegley. Yes. I had a company called Banner Life, and I had $250,000 of life insurance coverage, and it only cost me $300 a year. And it was a 20-year policy. I could not beat that type of coverage, quality coverage. You want a quality life insurance company, and you want coverage that is going to be there for you regardless of how well the company is doing. That's very important. You have to get a company that has a good rating. So, yes, I had that policy, and I kept it until I reached retirement, and then I decided I didn't need life insurance anymore. Uh, I didn't have any debt, fortunately for me, and it just wasn't something that my wife and I discussed that we were going to continue with because at that point, it became much, much, much more expensive. Right. So you need to then reevaluate almost annually, you would say. Yes. When you get into your 60s, life insurance triples and quadruples all the way up to very large premium amounts. But some people still feel it's a good investment because to save that premium every year, they feel that it's worth the gamble to pay the premium 
and to have that life insurance in the event something happens to them. And Fegley does not go with you into retirement, correct? Fegley does go with you into retirement. You do get, uh, at age 65, you do get $10,000 worth of free coverage when you reach age 65. But if you still want to continue Fegley as a federal retiree, yes, you can continue it. You just pay the premium. And unfortunately, the premium will go up as you get older. And $10,000 for free doesn't buy you much, frankly. If you know, and... No, it, it barely gets you a pine box, I hate to say. yeah, But it's something very, very important about life insurance. Very important, Tom. And that you must have a beneficiary for your life insurance policy, and you must communicate with that beneficiary to let them know that a life insurance policy exists. Because many times people pass away and there's no one to contact the insurance company to say, you know, this person passed away. The insurance company is not going to contact you. You have to contact them. And in many, many situations, and I know with uh, Fegley, you have to provide a certified death certificate. That's very important. Otherwise, they won't pay it out. Yeah, so whoever's left over has to take care of all those details, and they have to know that they have to take care of them, in other words. Yes, you, you have to be the beneficiary, and you have to prove that this person passed away. The insurance company is not going to do that for you. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services. Thanks so much, as always. Thank you, Tom, for having me on today. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 Defense Authorization Bill caused a sigh of relief in parts of the Pentagon. Why? Congress decided not to impose new rules and requirements for using other transaction authority, OTA, an increasingly popular way to streamline acquisition of new technologies. And anyhow, DOD recently updated OTA guidance on its own. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the Director for Contract Policy in the Office of Defense Pricing and Contracting, Mary Catherine Robinson. For the years between FY16 and FY22, we had about 15,000 total OT actions, and that includes mods and OT awards for about $70 billion in spend. And these are the years that we specifically saw the huge growth in. So like in 2016, we had about 333 actions for $1.3 billion. In FY20, we really peaked because of COVID, right? We use a lot of OTs for COVID. We did about 3,200 actions for $16 billion. And then we've come down a little bit in our dollar spend. But right now in FY22, our last year of of full data, we had about 4,400 actions for about $10.7 billion. And right now we're thinking that, F, again, I don't have the final FY23 numbers, but I think that FY23 is going to come in around that. So again, a handful of OTs 15 years ago. So this is a huge growth. I think people are seeing the the benefits of the OTs. I think they're seeing the benefit of, of using non-traditional defense contractors. And I think that's where the growth is coming from. Appreciate the the data. I think it's really helpful to to understand the growth and the fact that yes, during COVID, OTs played a big role in a lot of the efforts to get vaccines and understanding what's happening. Do you break down where those actions go? There's so many in technology, so many in weapons, or so many in in, in different pieces and parts that DoD can can touch. I have a couple numbers in regards to that, I think, but I just really now I know that about eighty percent is R and D goes to research and development. And then we have a couple towards weapons and ammunition, electronic and communication equipment or professional services. But I don't have a breakdown of the specific R&D ones. I'm sorry. You yeah. see a lot of the awards and, and you know people will say, oh, well, it goes to the usual suspects, right? Pick your big defense contractor or big professional services contractor. First of all, what do you say about that? Because I think that's a concern about OTs. And second, do you have data or anything that says actually that is we see those press releases because those companies are big and they put the press releases out, but we just don't see the small pre- the small companies who probably don't have a big press machine to, to push them out. 
what what data do you have about this usual suspects concern? The requirement is for a non-traditional defense contractor to be part of the team in a significant way, right? So in FY22, 92% of our OTs were awarded to those those OT contractors or performers that had a, a non-traditional defense contractor performer on there doing something in a in a significant way. So what is significant, right? So the agreements officers actually held to f- try to figure that out and to make that determination and make that independent judgment. So again, s- significant is not necessarily dollars. Significant could be sp- specific to a key technology or a specific cost reduction. Some of the things that we look at is, again, does the NDC supply a new key technology product or process? Do they have a novel application or approach to the technology? Do they have a material increase in the performance efficiency of a key technology? Do they result in a material reduction in cost and schedule of a project? Or do they provide a material increase in the performance of the prototype project? So again, that does not necessarily mean that they're the prime contractor on something, but it does mean that they're they're doing some heavy lifting on the actual project itself. So again, agreements officers are held to that. They have to determine and they're required to validate and document that status. And again, we were able to make that determination on 92% of the projects that we do. So even if it's going to Lockheed Martin, that does not mean that we don't have NDCs out there. Uh, DOD released an updated OTA guide earlier this summer. And uh, let's start there. What does the guide look like? Why did you release it? What was the impetus for the update? And, And then we can get into what's in the guide itself. Because of this growth and because of everything that these OTs can do for us, we've work to update that OT guide. And we want to be able to help this DOD acquisition community, as well as our contractors, our partners in industry, academia, and then also nonprofits to help define what an OT is and help them create their the best OTs that they can, they can create. So in this guide, what do we do? Um, we did a couple things that we had to do, right? We made those updates based on changes in statute and regulation and recommendations that we received from the DODIG and from the Government Accountability Office. But then we also added uh, administrative guidance and best practices for things like reporting, funding, participation and validation of those NDCs, those non-traditional defense contractors, protest procedures, agreements officer warranting and training, and then other considerations for folks to take into account as they move forward with their OTs. You mentioned some of the changes that you worked in around statute and and regulation and recommendations. Let's start there. Uh, Maybe highlight a few, one or two of them that really stood out to you from the sense of, hey, this was a big change from the last time we put the guide out, which I think if you correct me if I'm wrong, it was maybe 2018, 2019 timeframe? That sounds about right. So one of the things that we did, and this is something that came out in the FY23 NDAA, was a reference in regards to uh, follow-on production OTs, right? So the understanding before was that you had to reference in your prototype OT that you were possibly going to do a follow-on production OT out of that. And that was the only way that you could have your sole source follow-on. You had to reference it in the solicitation for the prototype. Well, something in the FY23 NDAA actually took that requirement out and said, well, you don't have to explicitly state it. You can just move towards a, a production OT at the end. So that's one of the updates that we made. It is still a best practice, though, to put that in your OT to say, hey, in your solicitation, we are planning on doing a production OT, but it is no longer required. If we could just kind of pull the string on that for a second as well, talk a little bit about why that's an important change. Is it, would that slow down or would that encumber DOD from kind of moving, hey, we have this successful prototype, let's broaden this? Or was it just something around industry? They wanted more uh, opportunity to bid or to to apply for or to get on, on board with the OT? Yeah, I think there was some confusion on when we were doing OTs on the prototype side on where we were going to go with that and how we can push forward and how that competition would work and ensure that we could have a kind of, like you said, a quick turn to production. So this way we're able to, to again, make that determination as long as we can show that there's been a success at that prototype OT based on the criteria that we've set for success on that prototype, we can move straight to a a follow-on non-competitive effort. And that could be either a FAR-based or an, another OT for production. So this is really kind of a clarification and it, to ensure, again, that people have an, a great understanding of what could come out of that prototype OT. 
One of the other interesting bits and pieces about the OT guide is the myth busting. And there's, I think, 12 myths in all. Talk a little bit about some of those myths, maybe the ones that were, were most prevalent or the ones that stood out to you. And then let's talk about how you are busting them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Especially I recommend everybody go check out Appendix D of the OT guide because there are these myths here that we all, I would say even some of us here have internalized, right? And then how do we tell people that it's different? So one of the biggest one I think is in regards to OTs not needing to be competitive, right? That's a huge one. And that's what we continually hear that we're not doing. You don't not need competition for OTs. Okay, well, you actually do. So as we do not necessarily have to follow the Competition and Contracting Act for an OT, but we are supposed to be looking to get competition to the maximum extent practicable. And we want competition, right? Just like in a FAR-based contract, competition actually helps us. It will lower prices. It will get us high-quality products. And then it will also get us innovative solutions. And then the other one, like we were just talking about, the other benefit of a a competitive prototype OT is that you can go to a non-competitive follow-on production award out of that. So number one, we absolutely want competition. And that's something that I hope that we've dispelled in this document. Mary Catherine Robinson, Director for Contract Policy in the Office of Defense Pricing and Contracting. That's part of the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. She was speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.